So we are, I'm, I'm Ben, by the way, the pastor here, uh, and we've been going through the book of Romans for, uh, this will be week 14, so if you're just joining us, uh, I will uh, do a little bit of review pointing to last week, because uh, we're in kind of a new mini section inside of Romans, which is chapter 9 through 11, and chapters 9 and 10 are particularly controversial and have been for a very, since at least the 1500s in the Reformation, but probably before that, uh, which is they seem to contradict each other. And what I want to say is, well, a couple of things. One, uh, I have a particular perspective on it, and I do think I'm right, okay? Um, how, how weird would it be for me to preach something to you that I didn't think was right, okay? Because um, that's the alternative. However, I do want to kind of humbly admit that there are other perspectives from other people who were biblically faithful Christians. And if you're one of those, feel free to be wrong, okay? Um, it's, it's your prerogative to walk around believing... Never, I'm just... I can't take that too far because someone will think I'm not joking. Alan's looking at me like, be careful. All right. Uh, so um, let's be of good humor about it. But I, I, I said that last week. And I felt a twinge of, like, something got heard that I didn't, wasn't saying. And here's what, I wanted, what, here's what I mean, is that I think in our culture, our postmodern relativist culture, when we encounter something like this, a mystery or what feels like something that's hard to understand, and especially if you then respond to that by Googling it, you will find really, really smart people using lots of big words to argue with each other, and they all seem to be kind of right. They've all got verses. And because we're in a relativistic culture that doesn't actually believe that truth is anchored in something outside of yourself, it's actually anchored to you, which means if the anchor is anchored to the ship, it's not an anchor. And so what we do is we go, we shoulder shrug. I call it the postmodernist shoulder shrug. You just show, who can really know? And you just dismiss the whole thing. Right? You just go, who can really know? Let's skip to chapter 12, where it seems a little more concrete, right? And what I felt a little bit of a shoulder shrug when I said there's two opinions about this verse. And you go, well, if Ben can't figure it out, who can really know? I don't, and what it means is you're not accountable to it anymore. You can just wait for that to be over. And I want to say, that is not what I'm saying. Please do not confuse my attempt at humility with a lack of conviction. You need to have a conviction about what God is saying in this word. And God is saying something to you in these verses that is not anchored to you and your opinion or to mine. It is anchored to God. And the question is, what is God saying? Okay. So I want to, if you did that last week, I'm sorry. Now I'm hoping you won't do that, all right? Um, I think the way we respond to things like this in the Bible is we need to be curious. We need to lean in to, into God, not into passivity, and say, well, I don't really understand, therefore I'm not going to investigate. We need to have curiosity about God and say, he's bigger than I thought he was, and he's more mysterious than I thought he was, and I'm just going to believe everything he says, even if there's two things that I believe that feel like they don't fit together as neatly as I'd like them to. You with me? 
Just believe everything God says and let your understanding be secondary instead of saying, I must understand everything before I will believe, right? So I want to push you to say, yeah, let's be humble, but don't be lazy about the word of God, amen? All right, enough of that. I'm going to start my timer now because that doesn't count. But that was a whole page I just did, and it was free because I didn't start my timer until then. All right. So, y'all don't believe me. You're laughing nervously. It'll be fine. So, let me sum up. Uh, if you missed last week, chapter 9 will tell us, or did tell us, that it's God's free and sovereign choice that brings us into relationship with him. God is at least the initiator in your salvation. If you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, that started with God's decision, not yours. Okay? That's chapter 9. Chapter 10 will tell us this morning that we are responsible for our own unbelief and rejection of Christ. And it begs the question, well, that seems unfair. God chooses, and if, and if he doesn't choose me, then he's going to blame me. That's, that's how it feels. Okay? Paul addresses that question. So some will say that chapter 10, which we'll look at this morning, explains chapter 9, saying that God didn't choose the Israelites because, or the ones that rejected him because he knew they were going to reject him. So he looked ahead, he saw, oh, uh, so-and-so is going to say no to me, so I'm not going to ask him. He has that foresight, and that's what he did. So chapter 10 explains chapter 9. Or... Others will say the opposite, saying that chapter 10 is the result of chapter 9. The reason so many Jews rejected Christ is because God did not choose them. Okay? Those are kind of the two, generally speaking, the two camps. So let's look at it for ourselves. Chapter 10. Actually, starting in chapter 9, verse 30, which is where this section really begins. He says, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. We'll talk about that in a moment. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We've talked a lot about the law, so I'm not going to go back into all of that. But you see, God has just got done saying in chapter 9, I mercy who I mercy, I harden who I harden. And now he says that he placed Jesus in their path. Jesus is the stone, okay? And he will either be a cornerstone, a foundation stone, or he's going to be a stone that crushes you, that you stumble over. Paul's combining two prophecies there in that quote from Isaiah 8.14 and 28.16. If you put your trust in Jesus, he will be your sure foundation. Or, option two is, you will not see him, you will not see the stone in your path for what it is, and you will trip over it. 
there's only two responses to Jesus. And this has always been true, not just for the Jews, but also for every human being on the planet. You either receive him or you stumble over him, but you do not avoid him. This is, and that seems sort of unfair. God, why would you put something in front of me to stumble over? Look at verses 5 to 13. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, what he's saying is, Jesus came to you, but you're still looking for someone to go to heaven for you and someone to go to hell for you. You're still looking for the Messiah. He says, Jesus came, he lived among you, that he, and then we have come and we have preached him to you after he came and left. You have heard the word, you've heard the gospel, and Jesus is right, the word is right in front of you. And you're still standing there looking up, trying to wait for the Messiah to come. This is the story of humanity, not just the Jews. Humanity is working, is stubbornly working on a self-salvation project and has been since the fall. We are looking constantly for someone or something to save us and rescue us from what is broken in us. We used to think it was education. The modernist movement was, hey, if we just learn enough stuff, invent enough stuff, and work hard enough, get all the details right, science will save us. Reason will save us. We can just put in it, we just, all of humanity puts all their reason and knowledge together and all of their ingenuity and hard work, we will save ourselves. That was their Tower of Babel. And then we found that it has utterly failed to do that. We got the internet. We actually figured out a way to take all of human knowledge and wisdom and put it together and put it in a little thing that you can carry around in your pocket. And what has it actually resulted in? Are we all unified, one big happy family? We have not solved any of humanity's biggest problems. And we have the peak of not just current human knowledge, but all of history. It's in your pocket. And it has not helped. So modernism failed, and postmodernism goes, hey, look, the answer is everybody just be yourself. Find yourself, anchor truth to yourself, be your best self, and that will fix everything. And what has that resulted in? The same mess. And what he is saying is, you, you've had Jesus right in front of you. We preached him to you. You knew him. Some of you saw him and lived with around him. He came through your town and did miracles. And you're still standing there looking, waiting for the Messiah to come. It's a failed project. Verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him 
will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think this is probably the simplest and clearest description of what a person must do and believe in order to be a Christian. So first you have this idea of confess with your mouth. And the way Paul uses the word confess is not just saying words. It's not the kind of the traditional altar call where you come up and you repeat the, the, the special words and then you're in. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about throwing in with the entire body of faith, the people of God and what they believe. I am in. So I'm confessing with those around me. I'm saying I believe. I'm agreeing with God and with what we believe. It is a confession. <clears throat> so it's more like a, a confession of faith, not just saying some words. So you're saying, I'm in. You guys, I believe what you believe. We're all together, one big happy family. We have a confession together. That's what he's saying. So you confess with your mouth, and the other pieces believe internally that Jesus is alive. You actually believe. You're not saying some words that you don't believe. You actually believe in your heart, inside. Your inside person believes. that This is not just a historical faith about started by a guy who did some good stuff and said some good things and really stuck it to the man and believed in love and I believe that he was a great teacher back then and I really like his teaching you're saying he is alive and present right now and he is saying the things he has always said and I believe him right so Jesus is Lord that's a statement of faith he's in charge he's king and I believe it's not an old thing it is also a present thing that's what he's saying. That's what it means to become a Christian. Let's not confuse it. Because it's gonna, that's important because we're going to have to share it. So we need to not be confused. We'll get to that in a second. So this already seems to be encroaching somewhat on chapter 9. If you remember, God's in control. He's in charge. He starts this whole thing. He initiates. He calls. He does all that. And now you're saying, but you have to do something. You have to believe something. There's content to believe, and there's things you have to uh, say and, and externally believe and internally believe. And then he says this frustrating word, everyone. Verses 11 through 13 really throws a wrench with two everyone who believes statements. Verse 12, I think, indicates that what is in view here is that being in Christ is not for any one demographic or group. He says, he mentions the Greeks and Jews and men and women, slave or free. Everybody's in. Salvation is not only for one group, in this case, the Jews. They got it first. It landed on their doorstep first. <clears throat> That's special. But it is not only for them. It's for the world. It's for everyone. Every single group. And I guarantee you, somewhere lurking in your heart, just like mine, there's a group, at least one group, that you think is not completely called. That's, or at least harder than others. And whatever that group is, Paul is looking at that, and he's saying, they're in. They're not excluded. They're also 
they're also in. Everyone is everyone. The word everyone means everyone. The word all means all. It is everyone who believes. Everyone. There is not anyone left out. You can't take any group of believers out of everyone for any reason other than not believing. You either believe or you don't. You're either in Christ or you're not, but there is no other qualification that is put on the gospel. Verses 14 through 21, <clears throat> he says, how? So this is the question, how, the, how do you believe? He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? They here would be the Jews. That's what he's, who he's talking about. Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So once again, this also applies to us. We are also a disobedient and contrary people. So we have another one of these Change, logical change. We've seen a couple of these, and we're going to compare them in just a second. But here we see someone is sent, then preaches, then that preached word is heard and believed, and then those people that believe call on God to be saved, and they are saved. That's the logical change. If you take one of those things out, and this is where this gets hard, take one of those things out, and the saved doesn't happen. If no one is sent, then no one preaches. And if no one preaches, no one hears. And if no one hears, no one believes. And if no one believes, no one calls on God. And if no one calls on God, no one is saved. That's scary. Chapter 9, it's God foreknew. God does all the stuff. And we get to sit there and relax. But here in chapter 10, he says, this chain, you're right there in the middle of it. You're a link in the chain. If that link is gone, then the link, the chain is broken. You feel the weight of responsibility that just landed on your shoulders? <laughs> if any one of these links are taken out, the person is not saved. In this case, Paul is talking about the people of Israel who had heard the message. He's saying they have heard they know, in other words, they know they don't believe. They had Jesus, they had the law, they had the whole thing, and we have preached it to them consistently and regularly, and Paul is announcing, you have officially been witnessed to. You know the truth, and those who reject it are on the hook for it. 
is when God tells you the truth, when God sends someone who tells you the truth, you're now accountable for your reaction to it, for your response. Okay, so let's look at these two chains, one from chapter 9, what God does, and chapter 10, what we do. If you remember chapter 9, he foreknew, then he predestined, then he called, then he justified, then he glorified. In chapter 10, what we do, sent, preached, heard, believed, called him, saved. Well, which is it? Which is it? Does God do it or do I do it? You see the, yeah, it's both. So the way I reconcile these two chains, and I couldn't come up with a cool graphical way to do a chain that didn't require an artist, all right? So I did little arrow thingies, all right? The way I reconcile these two is to say that if God has not called you, chapter 9, then when you hear, you will not believe. You won't. The belief, it must be initiated by God. If he has predestined you, in other words, then he will send, he will send the word to you. And when you hear, he will call and you will believe. That's what I think. The church must go and preach, but they will go and preach because God has sent them and anointed them to preach. Their work is necessary, but is still under God's sovereign power. I'll show you a scripture in a minute that I think helps that. The disciples are evidence that he will find someone to go and they will go. I love, it's very important, I love the fact that most of those disciples were relatively uneducated country boys who never quite seemed to get it until after Jesus was gone. And those are the ones God picked. Jesus chose those guys, not the professionals. He didn't go to the synagogue and find the rabbis and say, you guys are, going to, I'm going to sit, you guys are already halfway there. All you need is a little bit of tweaking to your theology, and you're ready to rock and roll. God's point is, I think part of the reason he did that was to show us, I will send someone. I will find someone. Even the least qualified, I will send. Because I am intent on saving my people, and I'm going to do it through you. I don't know why God does it this way. I don't know why he puts us in the chain. It bothers me. It seems like a bad leadership decision. To hinge the eternal future of the people, the humanity, and to link it to, to squeeze us into one of the links in the chain and say, if you don't preach, they won't hear and they won't believe, and the whole thing falls. But I think this is Paul's point. God will send. He will find someone to send and to preach because he's intent on involving us. I feel like Many years ago, this became a little clearer to me as a dad about what's going on there. Because I remember sitting with my son fixing the vacuum cleaner. The vacuum cleaners always seem to break. I don't know what it is. Like, you know, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't make a vacuum cleaner that doesn't cost a billion dollars that doesn't clog every week, right? So I'm cleaning out all this crud from the vacuum cleaner, and Owen wants to help me. And he's tiny. He is not helpful. He's helpful. He's more helpful now than he was then. 
So I give him a little screwdriver. He sits on my lap on the floor as a vacuum cleaner, and I fix the vacuum cleaner, and he pokes it with a screwdriver for 20 minutes. Just pokes it, and then we finish, put it back together, we, and it works. And he runs to Heather. He runs to mom with the screwdriver in his hand, probably not a smart idea, <laughs> saying, I fixed the vacuum cleaner. Did he fix the vacuum cleaner? Eh, one could argue. But he was not that important in the process. And it's something like that with us and the mission of God. He says, look, I want you, I'm putting you in the chain. And it's real. It's not pretend. That's where my metaphor kind of breaks down. It's real. It's true. If you don't speak, if the church does not go into the world and preach the gospel to it, they will not be saved. Live with that for a minute. That's no joke. It's a response to this, the responsibility of the church. But God has ordained since before the foundations of the world were laid that he would send you and you would preach and they would hear and they would believe and they would call on him and they would be saved and then glorified. That is what God has decided before you were born and said to him, I'm scared, I'm inadequate, I don't know how to do this, I am lost as lost can be, please don't make me do this. He decided. So anyone whom he calls will answer by believing and calling on him. So regardless of how you reconcile the chains together, you must believe in both. That is what you can't get out of. You can't theologize your way out of that. You must believe both. That's what is essential. You must submit to God's sovereignty over all things, especially your own salvation. And you must also submit to God's demand of a response of faith. We are, it's, it's often been said we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Faith is always accompanied by work on our behalf, on our part. So let's try to put this together. One, God is sovereign, you're not. Your will might be free, I don't know. I don't know how free it is. But it's certainly not more free than God's will. Number two, God does not need you, you need God. But God chose you, which is better. You're not in Christ because God needed you. That's good news. Because what if he stops needing you? You ever had a relationship like that? Where you're only good for that person while they need you? And when they stop needing you, you drop away. That's not God. God chose you. He does not need you. He has sovereignly chosen to make you essential to his plan of redemption. You are the one he has sent. I need you to feel that. You are the one he has sent into the world. Take the butt off of the response. He knows. He knows you're a mess. He knows you're distracted and busy and weak and scared 
He knows every single weakness you have right now better than you do, yet you are the one he has sent into the world. This is what he did. You're the one who must preach so that the lost can hear, but their believing and calling on him are not your concern. Your will cannot affect those things. This is hard. It's not hard when you don't care. When it's a stranger you don't care about and you tell them about Jesus and then they don't receive him, okay. But what about when it's your kids? What about when it's a family member? What about when it's one of your parents? What about if it's one of your siblings or your best friend who you have shared the word of God with? They know who Jesus is. They know what you believe. And they said, no thanks. You have no control over that. And you have to just open your hands and say, I've done what I can. Your job is not to save people. Your job is to bear witness to who Jesus is. That's it. Your will is not powerful enough. It's not free enough to do that part. Only God's is. Every Christian, this is a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Probably all of you have heard this because it's one of my favorites, partly because it's so short and I can actually remember it. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. What he's saying is it's a binary choice. If you're in, what you're in for is not just the good Jesus stuff, it's also the share Jesus stuff. Give him away. It's been said that the church does not have a mission, the mission has a church. In other words, the church does not exist for itself. It is not designed to be a spiritual cul-de-sac where all the blessings of God are enjoyed but not given away. That is not who we are. The word of God must not end with us, but it must be received by us and then proclaimed to others. That's God's plan. And we can complain about how weird the plan is, or we can just get along doing the plan. What you've received from him, which is his word, the gospel, you must give away. You have been charged with that. It's your responsibility. That's what the church is. Paul said it in Colossians. I love this verse. I've been meditating on it for a while. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, lots of wonderful everyone, present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So who is doing the toiling? To make others mature in Christ. We are. Toil. It's hard work. Toil does not sound fun to me. I don't, some people love to toil. They love hard work. I don't understand people like that. I love not hard work. The easier the work, the happier I am. But some people love it. But it's still toil. It's hard. You're spent at the end of the day. You're tired after you toil, right? It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes sweat. It takes hard, hard work. That is what Paul is describing is this, what it's like to present everyone, all people, every, every, everyone as mature in Christ. But whose energy is it? It's Christ. It's his energy. 
who powerfully works. Who's doing the powerful work? It's Christ. And where does he work it? In me. You see, the, that's, that's the father and the son fixing the vacuum cleaner. It's his energy that he is powerfully working in me, not just in himself and not just in the world, but in me. But I'm toiling and I'm working and I'm pouring myself out to that mission. That's what Paul was about. So we must toil, but we do not do it with our own power or as sovereign beings ourselves. We toil as though who are energized by the sovereign power of God. So rest under his sovereignty and preach because he has sent you. And by the way, don't misunderstand the word preach. It's not just what I'm doing. It's just bearing witness, proclaiming. It's a declaration. Are you proclaiming who Jesus is to the world? Proclaiming is interesting because it doesn't require a response. I'm just proclaiming. I'm just saying who he is. And it's between you and him what you do with it. He doesn't say convince those. Bind their hands and drag them in. Guilt them in. Badger them in. He says, proclaim who Jesus is so that all will hear and those who he calls will come, will believe. So I want to say that if you're listening this morning and you've heard the word of God, you have, you've heard it multiple times from start to finish through this entire service, but you have not yet responded to him in faith, then I want you to focus for a second on what Paul says you should do in response to that. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Every one. Every single one. It's not for you and I to decide who he's calling because he doesn't tell me. He just says, proclaim. So I want to ask you to join in with the people of God, the church, confessing that Jesus is king and believe that he's alive. Will you do that, please? Just believe. Don't wait. Don't wait. And I want to encourage the rest of us who have believed and called on him that you would pick up this glorious responsibility by his power, by his strength, by his anointing, to take his word and proclaim it to your friends, to your neighbors, to the world. Don't let the culture tell, set your, the agenda of your life. I know you're busy. I know you got stuff to do. You got fires to put out. You got friends to keep up with. You got kids to raise. You got work to do, you got a job to fulfill, you got a career to keep track of, you got bills to pay, you got a roof that leaks or a car that doesn't work the way you want it to work, you got all these things you got to do. But don't let the culture determine and drive the agenda of your life. There is no agenda higher than this one. He has put the word of Christ in your mouth, so go and preach it to anybody that will listen. If that's all you do with your life, 
if that's all you accomplish from birth till death, if that's all you do, you win. So don't spend all your time piling up comfort and ease for yourself. I want to push you this morning to commit to toiling for him until that you would crawl across the finish line exhausted from spending your life toiling to present everyone mature in Christ, just like Paul. Amen? So let's stand together and pray. We're going to sing one more song together. Um, If you have not responded, if you have not confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart, I want to encourage you while we're singing this song to come forward and someone will pray with you so that you can confess what you believe about Jesus to them with your mouth. Not just positive thoughts, but actually say Jesus is Lord and receive Christ as your Savior this morning. If that is what you believe, you need to have enough courage to do that. To do that. Amen? Amen. And for the rest of us, let's worship God, thanking Him that He did call us, that by some miracle, when we heard the gospel, we actually believed it and responded, and here we are. It's a miracle. And so, God, we receive your word right now. We do not want to be as those who hear but do not believe. And Lord, would you uh, anoint us and would you send us this morning into the world carrying the truth of Jesus in our hearts. Help us to bear witness to him, to the world. God, I ask for a harvest of new believers in this church. God, not just because they came to a meeting and they decided to stay, but because someone shared witness to them, bore witness, said, I know who Jesus is. He's the real thing. You don't have to keep looking for a Savior somewhere else. Here he is. And that they would hear and they would believe and they would give themselves to that mission along with us. God, draw in the lost ones into this place. Use each one of us with our gifts, the things you've deposited in us, the way we relate to people, the the, the way we live, the way we think, our devotion to you, our worship of you. God, use all the things you've deposited in each one of the believers in this room to bear witness to you in the world. God, we thank you for the strange honor that it is to be a link in the chain. Holy Spirit, would you fill us, as Paul kind of alludes to in Colossians, that it is his energy powerfully working in us. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and energize us for this. Would you stir us up? Give us confidence. Give us boldness. Give us a willingness to speak, a willingness to pause in our busyness, to turn aside and attend 
to someone who's right you've put in front of us. God, give us wisdom in how to speak. Give us insight into your grace so that when we speak, it comes with understanding and clarity. God, help us to drop every excuse we hold up as another reason why we can't go and we can't preach. Make us people who declare and proclaim, who do not shrink back from the world. And God, I pray finally for anyone here this morning that just has never crossed the line of faith. God, enough is enough. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to give them the push that they need to come and confess them. We pray this in the name of our sovereign Lord Jesus. Amen.